Welcome to the Apologies Podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay Whistle-Fenton. I created this podcast to promote collective healing and repair. Each episode, I invite my guests to share an apology that they've been carrying. The only rule is that it has to be for a person they are no longer in contact with. So with each guest, we'll first spend some time just learning who and how they are before hearing their apology. My dream is that at least some of these apologies might actually reach their intended recipients. I also hope this podcast reinforces the idea that as different as we may seem, we're all just people and we all carry stuff. Today, we'll be talking with Jake Holmes. Jake loves the outdoors, and his life and work reflect that passion. He's a mountain guide at Acadia Mountain Guides Climbing School and a member of the Polar Geophysics Research Team at the University of Maine's Climate Change Institute. Jake's also a veteran and a dad. Jake, welcome to the Apologies podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. Jake, I want to hear more about your childhood. I think it's fair to say that you grew up in a way that one might refer to as off the grid. Yeah, for sure. I come from rural Maine and my family is, they, you know, grew up in the woods pretty much. That's how people lived. Not that they didn't have education and expertise in certain things, like they were all backwoods hillbillies or something like that. But um, it was very much a living off the land, hunting, fishing, lots of recreation time just spent out in nature. And we moved around a lot when I was a kid. So I didn't like grow up just in like one house and always have that to go home to. We were fairly nomadic. We went where there was work or where there were outdoor spaces. And Basically, we only had a house during the the winter. You know, sometimes we had houses in the summer, but quite often we just lived in campgrounds or out in, you know, a little shack or a cabin in the woods. I think my parents were pretty idealistic in some ways, you know, like, I don't I don't think I wore clothes until I was about four or five years old. And, you know, they tell a story about me going to visit my grandmother and she lost me in the grocery store then found me in the parking lot peeing on a lamppost. I had to go pee. That was the only bathroom I knew, right? So I have these weird memories that I find with when I talk to other people, like, you know, I remember the first time I used a shower, you know, or just weird things that are normal for, for other people in some ways. What role did books play in your childhood? Well, one of the things about growing up in a, in it with a childhood like that is, and especially even just in a rural area, there's a lot of isolation. So, you know, I spent a lot of time with books and my grandmother was, she was always taking college classes, you know, I mean, even into her, I think fifties and sixties uh, or she would have a job at the university of Maine just so she could get one free class a semester and, and use it, you know. But she'd also work at the public library in Waterville as, you know, a, a nine to five. So I spent a lot of time out there uh, with her just hanging in the library and then take a whole mess of books out with me, you know, to wherever we were living. And, you know, that's why I did a lot. I read. But yeah, my grandmother was pretty formative in that regard. You know, so I'm sitting at her at her desk right now. You know, one of her prized possessions, this uh, bookshelf in the background here was hers. You know, her favorite book was The Prophet 
by Khalil Gibran. And that I really remember being introduced to that at a pretty young age, you know, that and some other books like that just sort of sparked my interest and was off like wildfire. How did books feed into your love of the land or I guess sort of complement the the outdoor living? Yeah, I ran through every natural history book I could find, every, you know, every everything from outdoor living and, you know, hunting, fishing, things about the environment and total obsession with zoology and naturalism in general. That, you know, of course, you know, love dinosaurs and rocks and all that. Right. So, you know, I mean, after in, in my adult life now, it's funny that that's what I do, that I do now is I study rocks and ice and not so much paleontology, but yeah, I guide and, you know, share that love of the outdoors. And then my regular life, the University of Maine, I work on the polar geophysics team measuring glaciers up in the Yukon Territory in Alaska. I think a lot of us, myself included, have had fantasies about kind of moving to cabin or the woods in Maine and living off the land. But the situation can look very different in real life than it does, say, on Pinterest or Lonely Planet. Can you offer a more sort of balanced, realistic look at what it actually means to grow up in, as you described it, an economically depressed rural community? I mean, well, it's sort of like a funny joke on Maine license plates, you see vacation land or uh, Maine, the way life should be. And, you know, sort of the, a local joke in a lot of places up here is it's, it's actually Maine, the way life is, you know, you leave that way it should be kind of at the door with, with a, a life that's maybe living a little bit closer to survival or living a little bit closer to the land where, you know, you sort of have to be a jack of all trades. And that's a huge part of the culture up here is being a jack of all trades, being able to fix whatever breaks and being resourceful because you don't always have access to the things you need or access to a person who can come fix it for you, you know. So I guess growing up in in that way, it was a little bit of a shock to me when I first left Maine. You know, I just didn't, you know, you don't realize that other people grow up in different ways from you. And even if you do, you don't realize the the significance of that until you actually experience it. When was the first time you left Maine? Uh, Well, I had left, I had gone down to like other parts of New England, I guess, as a teenager. But really the first time I left Maine was when I joined the army, you know, I'm 19 years old and I went down to South Carolina and then Georgia, and then from there, Texas, and, you know, that was the start of my military career. So kind of as opposite of Maine as you can get in the continental U.S. Yeah, there was, there it was a lot of, there were a lot of uh, rude awakenings, you know, really, it's like, I didn't realize, I never realized I had an accent, and now my accent is not quite as thick as it used to be, but I got called Canadian a lot, you know got picked on for my accent. And and then there were just a lot of things like turns of phrase or ways that people talk that I just didn't, I had never encountered before, you know? So you learn a lot more about the world, or I guess you look at the world with a different set of eyes coming from that circumstance. You know, I imagine everybody does from their own circumstance. But for me, there was a lot of things I was, I was you know, culture shock quite a bit. Yeah. 
Okay, so you are in culture shock down in the southern U.S. What prompted you to join the Army? Did you come from a military tradition? No, I'm, uh, both my grandfathers had been uh, uh, in the Army, but really for me it was, it was a way to get out of, you know, just small town. And, you know, it was, nobody in my family had ever just, like, gone to college, you know, in the recent history. You know, it's like I had a great aunt who did back in the 1960s. You know, I kind of did the math and I, I was like, well, I don't have money for, I'm not going to get a scholarship. You know, I, I don't have an athletic, crazy athletic ability. You know, there, there's really no way out of this town. So it was the military, which, you know, I did good on my, I did good on my tests and they let me pick whatever for a job. And I chose satellite communications because I figured it would offer a good career afterwards, you know, and I took college benefits from my signing bonus and all that stuff. So, you know, then I was off and running. And how long, how long were you running? How long were you with the army in the army? I was in the army for nine years and I was stationed down in Texas and first cavalry division was my first duty station. And we spent a lot of time in the field. We deployed it's a high deployment unit. You know, it's the one that whenever you watch a Vietnam movie, you see the big patch with the horse and the stripe across it. That's like, that's, that's, that's the one, you know, it's like most highly decorated military unit around or something. I'm not sure what the claim to fame is, but it's a big deal for them. That was good. I learned a lot there. After that, I got orders to go back to school and learn satellite network control. So instead of dealing with the, the, like the radio systems at either end with all of the communications equipment interfacing directly with the satellite that's in between and managing networks of satellites for space and missile defense command, which, you know, it's cool. I mean, that's, that was back in right around 2000 and you know, Space and Missile Defense Command has been around in one iteration or another since I think the 1950s. And today we're calling it Space Force. So that was pretty cool. Um, I spent a few years in Germany after that, which was awesome. Came back to the States and worked on the NSA campus in Fort Meade, Maryland. And then I got out from there. And I had a daughter at that point And I was divorced, so I chose being a dad, got out, got a job, was kind of bored, switched over to satellite imagery from satellite communications. There's some irony that you started out with this love of rock, like being rooted, and then you ended up in in space, so yeah. to speak, wise. <laughs> but now you're making your way back to the ground, right? Yeah, I, actually, I don't think... Yeah, I, I never really identified the irony there, but you're absolutely right. I spent during that time I was on the launch team for a new satellite, and it's like, you know, you're working next to NASA and you know General Dynamics and all these, and it's just like you're like Apollo 13. You know, it's it's a big room with screens all up on the top and tiers of computer banks. You know, I mean that's what I had been doing working in operations centers like that for a decade at that point, and. You know, we had to do 72 days of on-orbit testing and they're like, and usually, you know, a resource like that's pretty expensive. So you don't get to take pictures. You get told what you're taking pictures of. Well, they're like, yeah, we just need to calibrate the camera. So take 
pictures of whatever you want. So I had two months basically of just pointing at like rock formations and (laughs) mineral deposits and bodies of water and like trails and mountain ranges that I wanted to spend time in and like, you know, all this crazy stuff, you know, and that, and that was like, actually that was one of the big flags when I did a little self-assessment reflection. I was like, wow, you just, that's what you want to be doing. You don't want to be pent up in an office, you know, sitting in a lead shielded operations center in a dark cave in front of computer banks, you know? So I had, I still had my college benefits at that point. And I'm, you know, I didn't really, I wanted to raise my daughter, you know, in Maine. It's a pretty significant difference between the way I grew up and everyone around me at that, by this point, I, you know, I was, you know, in my thirties. So I've already come to terms culturally and, you know, been all around the world and, you know, I really appreciated it. So, you know, I wanted to bring my daughter back home to have the experience because I knew she'd be out in the world when she got older. So I had my college money and, uh, 2009, I left GOI. I moved back to Maine, started at the University of Maine, uh, studying geology, went on and off for a couple of years, you know, managing life and going to school, non-traditional student and, you know, working at the same time, all that. And my daughter came to live with me. So I put school on the back burner, you know, she was the focus. So when my daughter went off to college, I got to go back to college. So that's where I'm at now. That's great. So another facet of your non-professional life and your professional life is climbing and guiding. Is that How did you get into that? Was that just sort of a natural part of your wilderness upbringing? Or did you come to climbing and mountaineering later in life? Well, it's I came to guiding later in life. Doing doing those things, adventurous things in the outdoors was always something that I was pretty addicted to. Even as a as a kid running around, I'd find anything and climb it, whether it was a rock or a tree. So, you know, I didn't get into the like the actual culture of rock climbing until a little bit later because, you know, it wasn't really a thing in the communities that I grew up around, I guess. You know, and that was seemed like a big like it's a California thing, like skateboarding or surfing right so it's like um i had no idea that there even was a thriving rock climbing community here in maine until later but yeah it was something i always did informally and then and i'd boulder around on stuff when i went hiking but then didn't get into rock climbing until i was in my late 20s formally where i actually you know went to a climbing gym and started going outside with partners or on little solo runs here and there. But I think it's something that I took breaks from through the years, whereas I never really took a break from hiking or mountaineering type things in less extreme environments, I guess. Like, I don't have as much time on, like, glaciated mountaineering routes as I do, you know, in other climates. So, yeah, I think the the rock climbing was something that, I used, I don't know, I'm beating around the bush. I'm using a lot of words to say a lot of nothing, I guess, but. No, it's, it's your, your journey with it. I guess one of the reasons I'm beating around all this is because climbing is something I did come back into later in life because 
my experiences in the military after I got out of the military, even though I'm doing these things where I'm going to college and I'm, you know, I wasn't always living the, the best life. You know, there was a lot of experiences I had in the military that weren't the greatest. Right. And it, there's always that also that guilt of like, you know, other, I have friends who was, were exposed to so much more than I was right. Or had horrible experiences. So, um, despite the fact that, you know, I'm doing all these things where I'm, you know, going back to school and making these moves, you know, I was pretty unhappy and I was pretty angry. Uh, you know, I wasn't always living my life that, that great, you know, in the, in the times where I got relief from that were really the times I spent outdoors. So, you know, every time I came home and I lived away for so long that every time I came home, it was like, you know, you'd cross that bridge and you'd pop into the bubble of Maine and I'd see everything with fresh eyes. It was like, you know, it was like the greens were greener, the, the blues were bluer. And it was like being here was, was different. So it would be the same when I went out on trail or I went out to a crag or I went out to a lake, you know, went down a river in the canoe. Um, so that's something that I really credit for helping me turn around some of the patterns that I had going on back then. And, you know, that being said, it's something that I really, it's important for me to share with other people, taking people from all over the world, really, and like bringing them out to Otter Cliffs or wherever, where they can, you know, hang out on a chunk of pink granite with waves crashing underneath them and go for their first rock climb on a breathtaking coastline, you know, or up to Katahdin where, you know, you can have a legitimate mountaineering experience. You know, you wouldn't be able to tell the difference between that and the Himalayas if you just had a picture out of context, you know, although any serious mountaineers listening would chew my ass for making that comparison. (laughs) I think the reality of it is that it's a, it's a stunning landscape here, you know, and, Anybody who can look at it and not feel that greens are greener, blues are bluer, life is good. This is amazing. I am so small. This is so big. You know, the world is great. And despite the fact that I'm focusing on whatever this problem is or that problem, let me put it in context. You know, let me put it in perspective. So, I mean, it's amazing sharing that with people. You were talking about what climbing has done for you, and I that resonated so much as as a climber. I I mean, I do I climb just as much for my mental health as my physical health. And when I tell people that climbing, rock climbing specifically, is the most relaxing thing I do, they look at me like <laughs> I'm <laughs> I'm nuts. But I do. I'm just wondering if that feels true for you too, because like it does take so much focus and so much. Like you don't have room for anything else in your head while you're, you know, trying to figure out your next move. If you're gripping by like two of your, you know, fingertips on something like you have to be so present. And I think I've never been great with other practices of mindfulness, but I guess rock climbing is a thing that it really, for me, forces that mindfulness. Totally. You have to go into flow mode to to do it well. I guess, you know, if you're always in your head, then you're not, ne- you know, you tell yourself you can't make a move. You never, you can't make that move. It'll never happen, you know? And when you 
when you move to outdoor climbing and trad climbing, the consequences in particular, I mean, not that the other sport, other versions of climbing aren't dangerous, but the reality is that it's pretty serious stuff and risk management is a constant present thing. So I think that's just as much as the mental health thing for me, you know, I mean, feel like those are the two aspects is that the flow that flow mode and risk management because some of my you know some of when you have a lot of when you're exposed to um i guess maybe traumatic experiences right the trauma is in how you handle it right the trauma is in how you come away from the thing right i mean discounting physical trauma you know it's how you how you process an experience and how your body reacts to it after that. That's really the thing. I think in a lot of, a lot of people and that I've talked to and, you know, I think a lot of veterans have, they deal with those feelings of stress and anxiety. And once you've, once you've been exposed to those types of experiences, you develop coping mechanisms to deal with them. And those coping mechanisms aren't always healthy. Some of them are, you know, intoxicants, some of them are bad habits, some of them are treating other people poorly, you know, it's, and all of almost all the negative ones are self-destructive and, you know, in one way or another, you know, I mean, there's also good habits that people get from those coping mechanisms as well, fastidiousness and punctuality and, you know, paying attention to detail and an ability to manage many stressful things at once, you know, an ability to hold more than one concept or idea in your mind, compartmentalization, you know, there's all kinds of coping mechanisms that people can use for good benefit in their daily life. But, you know, if you are a person who ends up with some of the more self-destructive ones, then I think climbing can be a real way to mitigate that because you can put that energy into something that, you know, you can control to some degree. You know, like your body movement, your balance, you know, your habits, your mindset going into that flow mode and not worrying about anything else that's going on, you know, and really, really cutting down the number of inputs, simplifying things, you know, and you can get that thrill or that adrenaline rush that comes from a self-destructive habit, you know, without drinking, drugging or, you know, maybe riding a motorcycle a hundred plus miles an hour, you know, then, you know, once you got that down, I guess the next logical step is moving off the crag or the gym, you know, out into real terrain. And in those situations, that's a whole other level of that same sort of thing that you get to develop and exercise. You know, it's like you got a new part of yourself, that's there, this, this thing that handles stress and crazy things happening and high consequences, right? And when you're in daily life, like that thing's still there. So if you don't give it a job, it's like a dog, so you have a border collie, right? If you have a working dog, right? If you don't give it a job, it will tear your house apart and it will be miserable. But if you give it a job, well, hey, now you can, it's happy and maybe you could be happy too. So, you know, I guess moving into bigger terrain and risk management, thinking about a lot of other things 
or about a team of people is a next logical step in exercising that, that thing. Well, I would think too, risk management being, I mean, from what I know of trauma, it, you know, there's a lot of loss of feeling of control. And so it also seems like in addition to having an outlet for that focus, it is kind of a way to find a sense of control. Like, obviously, you can't control everything that's going to happen when you're out on an expedition, but doing that mental preparation and risk mitigation and, and things like that seem like it could help reestablish sort of that feeling of, I guess, safety that comes with control, even if the environment is fundamentally unsafe. Yeah. I mean, it puts both in stark reality. So you, they're right in your, both right in your face. Like there, there are a whole bunch of things that you can control. You know, you can control how you, how you do your rope work and where you put your safety knots, where you place your gear, you can control how you communicate with your partner and whether you do safety checks, you can control whether you wear a helmet, you know, you can control your performance to some degree by doing the preparation beforehand, doing the research, doing the training, putting in the time, preparing yourself. Those are all things in your control, you know, and you're doing that thing in an environment where you cannot ignore the fact that you're not in control, right? You're on, if you're on a mountain, you're on mountain time. It doesn't work according to how you say it should work. So, is really another way to, to test yourself. You know, it's like a sport where there's no governing body, like there's no NFL or FIFA or whatever, you know, it's like, we've got the AMGA, but it's not as if they're like, actually, there's no referee, <laughs> right? There's no referee here. This is you and maybe your partner. This is your team versus this objective, you know, or maybe it's you versus this objective, right? So it's really just another way to pare things down. And, you know, you get the stark reality of both like, look, this is this is as much a mental exercise as it is a physical exercise. And it's as much of a, a practical thing that I'm doing physically in real life as it is a metaphor for how I go about my life. Have you done any guided trips specifically with other vets? Uh, yeah, I just got back from one, actually. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, we did five days in the backcountry um, in Chimney Pond in a lean-to. Um, we did a traverse up to Pomola, across the Knife's Edge to Baxter Peak, and then across Hamlin and down Hamlin Ridge back to Chimney Pond. Uh, so four, three, four thousand footers in one go. And there were two people who had never done it before, two newbies. And one of them turned back. One of them didn't make it. But the other did. Um, they both had great experiences. You know, five days in the backcountry. You know, it's a 17-mile walk to get in. That has to be, for all the reasons you were saying, for the ways it's helped you and, and kind of channeling the need to find positive coping things, that has to be really rewarding to be able to introduce someone else who might be in need of an outlet to that, to that sport. Yeah, totally. Totally. But the thing about it is you can't, you can't tell people that's what they're there for. That has to be something that they discover for themselves. 
Yeah. Right. It's like they've got, they have to feel it. If you tell them that's, this is what we're doing. Do, 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 and you're going to come away with this feeling. That, that's, it yeah. doesn't work. I also, I'm fascinated by the psychology of guiding in general with whatever population of how you are managing all of these individuals who have different abilities, different goals, maybe are looking for different things out of a given trip. So what's that experience like from your perspective of trying to figure out how to one, keep everybody safe, but to sort of read people and attend to the experience they're having? Totally. Yeah, that's definitely a thing just to there's the trip and all the safety stuff and the planning and taking care of everybody that you're paying attention to, but you're also really assessing people, their personalities and their abilities. It's a lot of, it's a lot of listening and a lot of watching be just being as perceptive as you can, you know, and it's like the more interaction you have with people, the better maybe you can be at it. And, you know, the other thing about it is, I don't know, there's always, you always have one person in the group who's chaotic, right? Just because that's a human trait, being chaotic. And, you know, there's going to be one person who's the most chaotic. It doesn't matter if like the most chaotic person on this trip was like equal to the most squared away person on the last trip. They're still the most chaotic person on this trip, right? So you have those people in it. And you also have the people who are like, you look at them and you're like, well, I, I mean, I don't know if this is within your ability. I guess the point I'm trying to make is that you, it would be easy to pigeonhole those people and say like that chaotic, the, the chaos Muppet, you know, <laughs> they're going to hold us up or that person who physically doesn't look like they just walked off the, uh, you know, the Harvard lacrosse team, they're going to hold us up or, you know, whatever it is like, you can't write people off. So it's this weird thing of you have to be really perceptive. You have to pay attention to what people are saying to you without saying to you. You have to watch what they're doing and listen to how they interact with one another and sort of just make the best assumption you can while keeping in your mind that people are surprising. People surprise you all the time. We could probably have just have to start a whole podcast talking about surprises while guiding. Like That could just be its own show. Oh, I like that surprise as well, guiding. Yeah, I will. So yeah, my first mountaineering trip was at Mount Washington. And when I was done, I'd said to the guide, uh, I said, yeah, I got to be honest. There's a point I didn't think I was going to make it. He got quiet and he looked at me and goes, I got to be honest. There was a point I didn't think you were going to make it either. So we both got surprised. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it is funny. It's like there, you know, that feeling is more. It's, it's more prevalent than one might think. It's like everybody has a self-doubt. But then you look you look at people and you're like, I, this is more than just self-doubt. Like, you're not going to make it, right? That happens sometimes. It literally, like, you know, there are some guide companies that, like, on big objectives and objectives that are dangerous, they'll take people out and you get to the halfway point and they just say, you, you, and you, get ready. We're going toward the top. You, you, and you. You got to head back toward base camp. Sorry. You know, we're not that cutthroat. I think we handle the things we handle really well, the terrain that we handle. I think we handle it really well and really safely, regardless of people's ability. But I've had both situations, really, where I've had people who said they could do something and they did it. Like, 
limping and exhausted. And to the point where like, I, geez, I, they might be really, they're having a hard time, you know, and you got to stick with them and you got to really pay a lot of close attention that they're not actually having a medical emergency, right? Because there's a difference between being hurt and being injured and, the less experience people have with those things, the harder it is for them to tell the difference, you know? And if you have a blister that like, Oh yeah, it's, it hurts. And it, that could really be bad under the right circumstances. If we were staying out here for several weeks, you know, and it got infected or something, but on a, on a one day trip or a two day trip, okay. Blisters, they can be really serious, but this is not a life threatening event. You don't have a compound fracture with your femur sticking out of your. (laughs) Right, 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 right. You know, so it's like people surprise you. Uh, You know, I've had it the other way, too, where had guys who do look like they walked right off the Harvard lacrosse team and at a really low elevation. Say, I, you know, I'm not really comfortable. I don't know. You know, I think we want to go back. Like, wow, really? Like, it's a bluebird day. There's nothing. It's, it's gorgeous. Conditions couldn't be better. Right. And, uh, you know, they just not feeling it. And you got to respect that, too. You know, it's like you got to go with whatever, whatever the people are, are feeling. Know when to encourage people to go on and support them in their effort to do that and keep them safe as best you can while also keeping in mind the other side of it, you know, like if somebody wants to go on, but it's not safe for them to go on, you have to be the bad guy and make that call, right? If somebody wants to turn back, despite the fact that you know, you are certain they can do this. You got to respect that too. Well, you're talking about just kind of uh, the metaphors of stuff. Cause yeah, my first trekking thing I'd never done any sort of winter camping and I had never been traditionally outdoorsy in any definition of the term, but I had basically had like the year from hell prior to that. And at the point where my guide was like, I don't think you're going to make it. All I was thinking was like everything I've gotten through this year, this effing hunk of rock is not going to be the this thing that turns me back. Yeah. And it is, it's like when life is really complicated and overwhelming and it's like, Oh wait, this is some this I can accomplish this and wait, I'm just gonna put this foot in front of this foot, in front of this foot, in front of this foot. I just do that a million times. Each one of each one of those is a victory. I'm getting so many victories today, right? It's like yeah, you know, it's so much less complicated, I guess. So keeping with that theme of forward momentum, what lies ahead for you? Well, I, I'm getting ready to leave and I think two weeks for Fairbanks, Alaska, and spend some time up there working on a hot water drill for University of Maine Climate Change Institute, and then come back down, finish out the semester, head back up to Whitehorse, Yukon Territory. Be there for a month and a half. I'll be out on the Eclipse ice field for the first two, three weeks, and then I'll be flying around and driving to a bunch of different glaciers. My partner Clark is going to come up and she'll be there for the last couple of weeks of that expedition doing some science communication journalism there on the glacier. And then 
three or four weeks of free time where Clark and I can go do a few objectives of our own. Well, Jake, this has been a really fun conversation, but it is now apology time. So, Jake, what apology would you like to share? Uh, We did a lot of talking about younger years, you know, and I had a friend back in those younger years where, you know, I didn't do I didn't do my best to honor his friendship. It was a situation where. Uh, he was in trouble and I could have stepped in and tried to bring a little bit of sanity to the situation. I could have stepped in and maybe had people slow down and clarify what was going on. And that would have changed the situation for him significantly. So, you know, I would apologize to him, really, uh, old friend named Ben, um, because although that's pretty vague, uh, you know, it's just one of those things that I, I regret it. I regret deeply being young and not uh, doing the right thing, knowing how to do the right thing. Well, Jake, thank you for being here and sharing yourself and your apology with us. Hey, thank you for having me. That was Jake Holmes, a dad, veteran, mountain guide, and member of the Polar Geophysics Research Team at the University of Maine's Climate Change Institute. To learn more about Jake and to hear additional episodes from this podcast, visit apologies-podcast.com. I'm Lindsay Whistle-Fenton. Thank you for being here for this episode of the Apologies Podcast. If you haven't already yet, be sure to subscribe to this podcast. And then if you want to go an extra mile, it would be so helpful if you would rate and review this series on whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts because of the algorithms and all the things. It helps other people find the podcast, which gives us a bigger pool of connections to make as we embark on this journey of healing. The Apologies Podcast is a production of Empathic Media, LLC. It's hosted, produced, and edited by me, Lindsay Whistle-Fenton, with music by Taizo Audio. If you have an apology you'd like to share, and you'd like to be considered to be a guest on the Apologies Podcast, I'd love to hear from you. You can reach out by going to apologies-podcast.com slash contact.